in this uh, section here, conversations with Jesus, adjusting. Have you ever had a conversation? I was asking Becky about this, where in the conversation someone says, "Hey, we need to talk about this more later." Anybody <clears throat> ever had those? I asked Becky that the other today, and I said, "Has that ever happened?" And she goes, "Oh yeah." <clears throat> and I said, "When?" She goes. There are so many, I can't remember. <clears throat> you know, the tendency I have as an extrovert, I, I, I didn't know if y'all knew that I'm an extrovert, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the tendency I have is I tend to live out here, you know? Like, I tend to think out loud. Uh, I have some friends that know this, and it can be very frustrating because I'm talking and thinking out here. I have no intentions of doing anything about it, right? <clears throat> You've been around me, I say, hey, you know, we're talking. Uh, I remember one particular occasion, a friend of mine, uh, we'd, I'd say, we ought to go to Dallas sometime over, over a spring break. That would be fun. Wouldn't it be awesome to do that? And so uh, we talked about it. And uh, two days before spring break started, my friend calls me up and said, now what time are we leaving for Dallas? And I said, who's going to Dallas? <laughs> and my friend said, we are. Remember you talked about it? I said, yeah, but we needed to talk some more about it if we're going to. Guess what? We went to Dallas. <laughs> My friend said, I've already taken vacation off. I've already planned this. We're going to Dallas. Now, just a little sidebar here just to remember. Ladies and gentlemen, guys especially, introverts make statements by asking questions. Would you like to go get ice cream? That means what? We want to go get ice cream. Extroverts on the other side just make statements. We're just talking all the time and we're right here. And half the time, we're not even sure what we said. Right? 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 Come on. Help me out, extroverts. Help me out. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Preach it. That's right. You need to understand us, introverts. Um, and so a, a lot of times in my life with Becky, I mean, she's had to say, we got to talk about this later. We got we to talk about this later, what you just said. And I would go, well, what did I just say? You know, as an extrovert, there are times when I get through saying something, I thought, did I say that? Uh, two weeks ago, whenever uh, we're John 12 and we're still there, uh, uh, at the end of class, I uh, had a couple of thoughts about, I made a couple of statements that I thought, I, I need to come back and unpack it a little bit. I, I, need to, I need to spend a little more time. In fact, a friend of mine said, Cliff, you just rolled something out there in the room, let it go, and now we go, what? what? You know, like that. And I don't want you doing that. So <clears throat> I want us to look at John chapter 12, and here's a conversation with Jesus that we've been talking about that I want to suggest, I want to go back to just to kind of revisit it a little bit here. Uh, because there's a couple of things that are, in my judgment, uh, incredibly important. It, we're going to begin uh, after Jesus had made his statement about his going to the cross and dying. In verse 31, when he says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And he continues this whole conversation all the way verse to verse 43. Uh, and in this uh, sort of conversation, I had said to you, I think there are some things uh, here that we see, for at least in my judgment, that are, that are pretty important uh, for us. And this first one is, in this first reality here, is, adjust, is, is adjusting to who's in charge. Now, I made this statement. I'm going to come back and kind of unpack it a little bit. I, I won't fix it or, or uh, finish it for good. Uh, there's a lot of, of good will in terms of people who have different opinions about this. Uh, that have been going on for, for close to at least 1,500 years. That the notion here that Jesus says the ruler of this world is cast out, or now is just, and the ruler w will be cast out, it's in the future tense, the idea, and that in some sense Jesus and his kingdom are the new reality. The ruler's going to be cast out. There's something now here present called the kingdom of heaven that is now taking over and is growing and developing. Uh, and so I, I, I wanted to, to kind of readjust this and touch this because I made this statement, and I want to come back and, and, and get after it in this regard. I made this statement that is even as the ruler of this world will be cast out and the kingdom of God is here, that it's my reading of Scripture and my understanding that the way that I understand this is this, that God is not in control, but God is in charge. And that's not just a wordplay there. That... That's not just a, a, a tricky way to say something. It really, it really attempts to get at 
the understanding that the ruler of this world will be cast out and that the kingdom of God is here and there is this tension that we live in. Does that, does that make sense? You, you may not agree with it. I, I know, what, and, and that's why a friend I said, I said, you know, when you say God's not in control, that's sort of a statement that's made often. And uh, I, I have, uh, as you know, a, a sort of a, a congenital response to say, of what? <laughs> when people say that. Uh, and so I, I want to look at this uh, from as clear or as careful. That's why I've also put this up here, that if you'd like to go to this site on Socrative uh, and you don't feel comfortable speaking out loud or, or, or asking questions, you can put, I've, I've put, I've got some, you're anonymous in there. I've disabled the name, so I don't have your name. I just have Bill's name. But uh, no, uh, don't have any, any names in there. You can, you can write a question or do whatever you want to with your smartphone or your iPad or, you know, whatever else you're doing. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon of this idea of who's in charge. And who, who's in charge or who's in control? In 1978, um, the San Francisco Giants had a group of ballplayers. They called them. Maybe some of you remember. They had a name. They went to chapel and a lot of things. Uh, Watson Spolstra, uh, who was the chaplain, uh, named this group of guys called the God Squad. The God Squad. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, baseball uh, team. They went to chapel often, and uh, it's been, it was reported in the New York Times that there was a game in which the Giants were in first place. Uh, I'll just read this here. They were in the first, first uh, place uh, in their division, and uh, as they were uh, playing in the game, they had uh, uh, Bob Knipper, or Knipper, how you pronounce it, uh, was pitching, and they were ahead, and he lost the game in the last couple of innings. And here's what he said. <laughs> Uh, which didn't go well with a lot of baseball fans. <laughs> uh, Knipper said this, that it was God's will that he gave up the losing home run in the game. God's will. Uh, that didn't set very well with a lot of the giants <laughs> that played baseball, but he made that statement. They reported in the New York Times that he had said that, if you will, that it was God's will. It happened, so it was God's will. And that is an understanding. As a result of the quote, a lot of the giants worried, they actually put this in the New York Times, they worried that their teammates would not be as intense as they should be and became much less or much more passive, believing this simplified notion that whatever happens is what? God's will. Now, I, I deal with this a lot in my classes at the university because this notion of everything happening, of all that happens, is uh, somehow, if you will, God's will. I refer you to the seventh question in the Westminster Catechism, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are those things whatsoever comes to pass that God wills it, that whatever happens is God's will. I got a little heartburn with that, uh, but I want to try to work through this. I want to suggest a couple of things here in this idea of your handout. Is, are we, is, there, a, is there an adjustment that we perhaps need to make in this? Some have, some have wondered if, if who's in charge, if everything that happens is God's will, that we fall into the tendency, a tendency, is to fatalism. Fatalism. It just, it's going to happen, and so there's not much worrying about it, and it's God's will, which is one form of uh, some of the teaching in, uh, in Islam, that everything that happens is God's will, and uh, you just have to deal with it. Um, it's fatalism because uh, God, if you will, has determined everything ahead of time. This view of sovereignty I'm read, is common. It's at times, and we often hear it when tough things happen. When bad things happen, we'll say, well, you know, God's in control. And again, that's not a complete sentence of what? You know, what, what is God in control of? That's the question that is at the base of this. It's not that God is not in control or God is not in charge. The question is, what? is he in control of? What does this mean? What are we trying to say? What are we not trying to say? I want to start with this idea here because I believe God is sovereign, but God is sovereign over his own sovereignty. God is not driven by anything. In this sense that he is sovereign over his own sovereignty. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this. And uh, we'll, I'll try to unpack it. I thought, I wish I would have stayed in Colorado this week. <laughs> Tell Becky, why am I having to do this? 
because I just, I, I feel like I, I just, I can't just throw that there. L let me give you, there are two, if you will, uh, basic features or ideas about God's sovereignty. And maybe I ought to stop and say, you know, sovereignty means God's ability to get done what He wants done. That God is sovereign in power. That God is able to get done what He wants to get done. Okay? There is this notion of what we call exhaustive sovereignty. Exhaustive sovereignty. It means this. That whatever happens in the world, God willed it. He is over all actions, over all matters. In this way, God is over everything that happens. Is, uh, in, there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion here. But let me say that I think God is exhaustively sovereign in the following ways. Here's the way I think God is exhaustively sovereign. He's exhaustively sovereign in His desire to create the world. It's His desire, His choice, His will. Nobody made Him do it. I don't even believe what I learned in vacation Bible school. God created the world because He was lonely. Remember that? Remember that? Yeah, He's lonely. You know, he, 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 I remember reading, hearing that in vacation Bible school and thinking that was the Bible answer. But God is exhaustively sovereign in His desire to create the world. I want to suggest to you that God is exhaustively sovereign in the way He created human beings. In the way that He created human beings as bearers of His image. And I take part of that, part of God's image is that we are able to create. Listen, follow me here if you will. That, that we are, the image of God is not only consciousness that we can reflect and think, you know, animals don't seem to be able to do that. Although my dog Buddy does know when he's been in the garbage can. I have noticed that. <laughs> I don't know where the consciousness is, but you know, he knows it. When I walk in, I go, you've been in the garbage can, haven't you? He goes, well, sort No, he didn't say that. <laughs> but human beings seem to have a sense of consciousness and self-awareness. A self-awareness. They also have the ability to create, not like God, in what we call out of nothing, but we have the ability to create through choices and decisions that we make, don't we? We have the capacity to create. I, I tell my students, this is the most incredible and most serious thing that God ever gave human beings was a will or ability to create, to, to make decisions in such a way that we begin to create a reality. Now, I, I ask my students, says, why in the world would God do that if He knew that human beings were going to mess it up? Here's my analysis. Again, this is exhaustive sovereignty. It, it seems to me, and again, you're just, you know, you're getting my opinion here, which has neither the thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions of Christ Community Church, it's elders or leadership. <laughs> God is exhaustively sovereign and sovereign over His sovereignty because it appears to me, it seems to me from reading Scripture, understand, that God wants a world in which love is possible. And in order for that to happen, there has to be, or have to be, creatures that can choose Him. In order for love to be possible, in order for that capacity to be there, this is where I think God is sovereign over His own sovereignty. To say, hey, could He create a world any way He wanted to? Could he have created all the world to be like Colorado? I would have liked it. <laughs> Could he have created us in a way that we didn't have choice or any, any reason and, and still, I don't know, I guess he could, at least theoretically. But God is sovereign in the way that he created human beings. And in that sovereignty to create human beings with a measure, I'm not saying people are completely free, with a measure of freedom. Because I believe at the center of the universe is a God who wants to have a relationship with His image bearers. God is willing to run the risk. You know, you did that when you had kids, right? Like I said to my dad one time, I was really mad. I said, hey, I didn't ask to be born. You remember what he said? He said, if you would, the answer would have been no. <laughs> right? When you have children, I, I talk to couples and say, you know, we don't know if we want to have kids in this world. 
We don't know if we, we want to have kids and, and, and bring them up in this world. Well, why? Well, there's inherent possibilities here. They could go nuts or they, you know, against us, they could break our heart. Yeah, that's right. That's true. But the other possibility is, is that they will love you and bring great value to your life. You know, I, maybe this is too simplistic for you, but, but if I understand God's sovereignty, He decides, I want a world in which love is possible. And I'm going to run this risk. That I'm not going to be in control. I am going to be in charge. But I'm not going to be in control of people. I believe that God is sovereignly, exhaustively in sovereign in the way He determined the means and the way of salvation. That's why He makes prophecies in the Old Testament. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is how this is going to work. This is how I'm going to bring this together. In terms of salvation and in terms of the mean of saving the human race, He is exhaustively sovereign. He determines, He decides, He creates what those conditions will be. So that prophecy in the Old Testament, an understanding of God saying, I'm going to do this. this you know, I'm, not, I'm not leaving this up to chance. I'm making this happen. I'm going to override and superintend, if you will, the issue of, of what it means uh, for salvation. And then, <clears throat> finally, He is in supreme control of how all this will end. He, he, he is in supreme control of how all this will end. Now, how is God not exhaustively sovereign? If, if everything that is happening isn't His will, I, for me that is a self-evident matter, how is He not exhaustively sovereign? In other words, He's limited. He's sovereign over His sovereignty. In these ways, I think. He is not sovereign over the acts of moral agents. He does not make a person do wrong. He doesn't even make a person do right. I say to my students sometimes, can God make you do what you ought to? Well, theoretically maybe, but it isn't happening, right? Can God make you do what you ought to do? Anybody? Can He make you? doesn't appear to be. Can He make you do what you ought to do? No. He can't make you. How's that? He can create circumstances that cause a person to be willing. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Can't make them. Can't make them. Now, again, in the story of Jonah, we see the final result that he changes his mind and goes. But there's a list of others all through Scripture that shows, okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go God's way. I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, maybe creating circumstances. You know, the difficulty with that, again, and I, I'm just trying. I may be opening more cans than I can even close up. <clears throat> Honestly. But, but the, the sense of God creating circumstances for some people seems so uneven. Doesn't it? It, it almost appears that there's some special attention over here for this person, but not over here. It's, it's kind of uneven. It, it makes you question, okay, wait a minute. God is no respecter of persons. God is no... No, uh, no, and I again take Jonah and some of these things as God's sovereignty over salvation. He's not leaving this up for for people to mess it up. You may this you may be not interested in this as much as theologians are, but God is not exhaustively sovereign and responsible for sin. Now I know there's a lot of discussions here, a lot of arguments here about if God decrees and declares what is happening then he becomes the agent of sin. Stanton? Two points. One is, you're one of the bravest people I know. You're brave yourself. <laughs> or stupidest. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. See? That's on me. That's on me. The second point for discussion is just that based on your argument, yeah. Christ did not have to come to the world and be sacrificed. Uh, why is that? Okay. In our in our in our in our center group, the question was, could Jesus have ever sinned? Well, he wasn't tempted if he couldn't. 
That's a that's a, a kabuki theater. It's a kabuki. I mean, this now listen. What Stan is bringing up is, listen, this is why it took 300 years for the church to get this ironed out. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. This isn't that vacation Bible school understanding. It took 300 years to the Council of Nicaea, 356, for them to get this ironed out. We've been Christians too long, see. That, that this notion of Jesus as really a human being, that's a great point, Sam. I, and I, I want to say this too. I, I, I'm, I'm giving you some of the results of some of this. I mean, there are some what we call middle knowledge. I, there's all, if you want to talk about this privately, there's middle knowledge. There's, there's all kinds of superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, all this stuff. I, I, don't, I don't want to just put you into a coma. But one of the difficulties is, if ever, if according to the Westminster Catechism, I, go read it, seven. Question seven, that what are the decrees of God is everything that comes to pass is God's will. Then, and I, and I know some brilliant Reformed theologians and I, tr I respect them and it's very difficult to manage that. And, and they work at it. Um, and, and I, you know, and lastly, this last one is that God is not ex exhaustively sovereign is that His will is not universally performed. Not everybody's doing the will of God. Jesus taught us to pray that way. That we would pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, okay. I'm getting some stuff here. I'll, I'll look here in a minute. You know, but this, this idea, let me just say why, this is not just an academic exercise for me. But this idea has divided people, obviously. It's also in some cases, brought great comfort to people. And at other times, great sorrow. One of the guys who teaches some of this at, uh, did a chapel service at Baylor University at the Truett Seminary and stood up and said, God killed my son. It happened. God killed him. Really? <laughs> that, that requires an awful lot of knowledge for me thinking that you would know the counsels of God that well. I know people whose lives have been wrecked because somebody told, well, you know, God's in control of this terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Now, we're going to look at two views here real quick. And I'm going to try to give scriptures for both positions. I'm not that brave. I'm actually a coward. <laughs> um, but let me say, that any time we study Scripture, we want to employ what is called the analogy of faith. I don't know if you heard this phrase or not. Where am I? I think I'm still on the same point. Yeah. Uh, the analogy of faith, and that's this, that no one Scripture can stand on its own. Okay? No one Scripture can stand on its own. You can't make a theology or a position. Out of, the analogy of Scripture, I want to read Charles Hodge, who's a brilliant uh, uh, Reformed theologian, says this, for... We follow the Scripture that it does not contradict. We cannot teach in one place anything that is inconsistent what is taught another. Hence, Scripture must explain Scripture. If a passage admits to a different interpretation, that only can be of one which agrees with the Scripture. We need to find other verses to support. Now, now here's, here's where the problem comes in. I believe the Word of God is inerrant and true and completely reliable. But our interpretation can be flawed. Yours, mine, everybody's. Except Becky's. And uh, <coughs> that's the only one. <coughs> Our interpretation of it can be flawed. And this is where we need to develop kindness and an openness to one another to say, I see your point. So <coughs> I, I want to look at something here, how we're going to go with this. The scriptures. Uh, I'm going to give you a few passages here, and you would you 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 can look at these. I've just taken these out of the Westminster Catechism, which again, the Westminster Divines in England. Uh, before the Beatles uh, were uh, are considered the great divines. I mean, divi the great doctors of the church. If you went to a Presbyterian church or a Reformed church, you uh, understood the Westminster Catechism. That it's one of those uh, great documents of the distilling, the distillation of, of of truth and understanding. So here's one of the passages: Psalm 33:11. Psalm 33:11. 
this would be consistent with, or the analogy of, of, of Scripture to say, okay, Cliff, you're wrong. God is in control. 33.11 says this in my Bible. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. And this is one of the passages that give me to say that God, everything that happens is happening because God has willed it. I want to read that. That's not all that I get from that. That it says the counsel of the Lord. Okay, I, yeah. What He declares, what He says, what He, what he, what he defines... It stands for the plans of his heart from generation to generation. That still doesn't lend me to the idea that everything that happens is somehow God's will. Because the question is, is what's happening in our world today the counsel of his will? That's the question. See, That's the question. Now, this, this passage says that I agree with this. The problem is I'm not sure, I, I'm not convinced, that everything that is happening is the counsel of of His will. That's my view. I, you know, you don't have to agree with that. A second verse, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it's happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. Again, I, I want to say this to, I believe God is exhaustively sovereign in what He chooses to do. And in this particular case, He's bringing judgment on Israel. He's just saying, hey, look, what I've said is going to happen. What I declare is going to occur. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the prophets, the, the seer, the naive, nabid, the, the people that are prophets, most, I think, uh, scholars would say this, that the prophets in the Old Testament... Don't prophesy as much about the future. Although they do some. They prophesy about what God said is going to happen if you do this. If you study the prophecies of the Old Testament, it's not future stuff. It's saying God told you that if you did this, this is what He's going to do. Well, you did this, this is what He's going to do. He's told me you're, he's, going to, he's going to bring it to pass. It's not all future stuff. It's invoking, if you will, the covenant. Then Acts chapter 2, verse 22. i get a little bit of the New Testament here. And again, what we're dealing with here is who's in control, who's in charge, is what is happening in our world and in our place, God. In Acts 2.22, in Acts 2.22, I think I'm in the right, yeah, here we go. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs with God performed through him in the midst, just as you know yourselves you, that this man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Okay? This was God's, what? Plan. This is again where I believe that God is exhaustively sovereign. He's going to create and cause salvation to occur. He sends Jesus. He's predestined it to happen. Why? God knows the heart of human beings. I don't, I don't think, again, and you could take issue with this, I don't think that God has to make people reject Jesus. It says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I don't think that God had to predestine in this sense. Here, i got to go find somebody. I mean, I think there were plenty of volunteers to reject Him, to refuse Him, to betray Him. But this idea that God is sovereignly, exhaustively sovereign, over salvation. He's not going to let this thing fall apart or not let this thing not happen. It's exhaustive, if you will, in that regard. Now, let me, let me flip the other side here. And these passages seem to teach that, that God is sovereignly, everything's happening. See, here's where the problem is. We've got to go to the analogy. There are verses that seem to suggest that and others that seem not to. Now, let me give you some that seem not to. Okay? Look at Jeremiah. Go to your table of contents there. Jeremiah, I'm going to just walk you through this here a little bit. Jeremiah 3. This is fascinating. Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah, in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? 
She went up on every high hill and over every green tree, and she was a harlot there. Listen to this now. This is God speaking in parentheses. I thought after she had done all these things, she will return to me. But she saw, but, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. In other words, God says, I, you know, here's what Israel, the northern tribes, did. Here's how they were so unfaithful to God, they were like harlots. Here's what they did. You know, this is what they did. And then he says, I thought after she had done all these things, she would return to me. But she did not return to me, and her treacherous Judah saw it. God said, what? I thought. Now, I understand. John Calvin, a wonderful, godly person, said that in these verses, this is an anthropomorphism. It isn't really true of God. It's just trying to communicate something to us. Calvin said it's like a mother or a daddy, dad leaning over a crib and lisping to their child. You know, it's... Oh, you pretty little, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Or like Becky talks to Buddy. Oh, Buddy, you're a good boy. <laughs> I mean, the, Buddy's looking at her like. <laughs> you know, do, do I do something? I told her, one of these days, Buddy's going to say, pretty good, I'm doing actually all right. He doesn't understand. She's saying something to him. His eardrums are reverberate. And, and that's the idea. I'm not... You know, I'm not making light of Calvin's ideas. It's the idea. The problem with that for me is, when then is the Scripture telling me the truth and not lisping? When is it just an anthropomorphism? Now, there are rules of hermit, uh, interpretation here. But that can open up a pretty wide gate. Well, that's just an anthropomorphism. I'm going to take it, as John Wesley said, as the, the common sense reading what it says. Okay, look, uh, uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Just keep going to the right. Ezekiel 22. I'm going to get somewhere here in a minute, I promise. Ezekiel 22, verse 23. I'm sorry. Yeah, here we go. I'm, I'm going to jump down. You can start at uh, Ezekiel 22, verse... Uh, Verse 23, but I'm going to jump down where it gets good here at verse 30. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and then stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. I, I looked. If, if, if it's just God's decree, somebody's going to be there. He said, I looked for somebody. They weren't there. It seems to me, again, God is seeking, desiring, wanting that. There in verse 30. Uh, I'll give you another passage here. Isaiah 59, 15 to 16. I'll give you another verse and I'll quote it. Uh, Matthew 6, 10, which is the Lord's Prayer, where we're instructed to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My thing's gone offline. That, that we're to pray that God's kingdom would come and His will would be done. Now, there are two ways of looking at that. There is a group of people that think the kingdom of God is not yet here. It will come in the millennium or in those days. So we're just praying, Lord, I would hope your kingdom will come. There are others who subscribe to the notion that the kingdom of God is here. Not in its all fullness, necessarily. But it's here. And the rule of God is here. So we're asking for the rule of God to occur in our lives and in our world now. Not later. Oh, well, it can be later too. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 10, pretty famous, where it says, God is not slow about His promises, but is not willing that any should perish. But there are. God does not will... The word there is, a, the Greek word there is the word will. God is not willing that any should perish. So, so these are some verses that, that at least give credence to. I'm trying to show you both of them to this notion. I wish I could fix this today and be done with it. Next week we'll deal with election. I'm a nut. <laughs> I'm insane. <clears throat> now, one of the things I just walked you through with Scripture. Uh, not all of them, but you know, some. 
and, and I hope you don't feel like I've been unfair to you know, load up. I, I just took the Westminster Catechism and took their verses. And then the ones that I know, I pulled them out. Whenever uh, I want to establish something, I want, I want to give you a, a, a grid here real quick. John Wesley, you've heard him, um, had a way of working through what, whether something was true, and he called it the quadrilateral. And I think I got something on here. I, I'm talking so much here. Here we go. The quadrilateral. The quadrilateral is a way to detect how do we know something is true or not. In this particular case, is God in control or in charge or is God in control? The first way that Wesley uh, tried to establish this and what I've tried to do is Scripture. Scripture. We've looked at that. You know, to be honest with you, the, 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 the answer is a little difficult. You know, there are passages that seem to lend in that direction. It might be, you know, that here's the deal. It might be that God's a little bit bigger than we are. Shock. <laughs> but, but I do think that this matters about how we talk to people, what we say to people, especially when difficult things are happening. If we just kind of throw it out, well, God's in control. You know, when a person's at a funeral, that may be okay, but six weeks later when they wake up from the grief, huh? What? My mom, you know what I'm saying? It matters. Wesley then would take it from Scripture to tradition. Watch this now. There are four of these. I'll give them to you. Scripture, tradition. What if Christians believed about this? Reason. And then experience. Wesley wasn't just willy-nilly about I'll accept something because I like it. He would take it through the grid of Scripture, through the grid of tradition, through the grid of reason, and through the grid of experience. I, I would just say, and you may think, again, I'm being unfair here because I've got the, the podium. Uh, a couple of guys you might want to read about this, a guy named Greg Boyd and John Sanders, no relation. Thomas Oden, who is one of the world's leading experts in the church fathers. He lives here in town. Tal's uncle. God bless him. Church theologians. This is... Some analysis here in this. Prior to Augustine, who's about 400 in there, you know, argued against any view... I'm just, I'm just reading now, okay? I'm just reading. This is an analysis by Boyd and others. The Christian theologians prior to Augustine, Irenaeus, Clement, uh, 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 Polycarp, argued against the view of God's sovereignty that consisted of control. They suggested that any view that suggested God as in control of people or events is a component of paganism or fatalism. Paganism or fatalism. In this matter of the decisions of human beings, the actions of people, not about what I said he's exhaustively sovereign over. The salvation, the way he created human beings, the way he's going to end. What he's saying here is no fatalism or paganism in that what human beings do is somehow, well, God's will. Kind of like Knipper when he said, I lost the game. You know, they hit the home run. This is God's will. Yeah, they about ran him off the team. Now, the, the idea of the church fathers and there, and you can read them, and I, I recommend it. I recommend you read uh, Thomas Oden, uh, Greg Boyd, uh, John Sanders. There's been a real revival in Christian circles in the last few years of really coming back to say, what did the church, these people that were the closest to Jesus, what did they teach? And we hear their names. Irenaeus, Polycarp, you know, Clement of Alexandria, Christostom, all of these guys. Because about the 4th century, church historians tell us, and John Wesley made this powerful say, in the 4th century, something happened that corrupted a lot of the church. Constantine became a Christian. John Wesley said, when Constantine became a Christian, it was the greatest tragedy in the history of the church. You know why? It became business. It got organized to the point that it became a business. And instead of these bands of followers of Jesus who followed Him and shared His story, and Wesley said it was the greatest tragedy in the history of the church. We can see some of that through the Middle Ages, other times. 
The church fathers have a pretty strong voice in this matter where they teach that human beings are responsible before God because God has created them with a measure of freedom. And they don't have to do what God wants them to do. And I subscribe to you that the matter of sin and problems and difficulties in our world is because human beings have misused their freedom and decided, I will not surrender my will to God. I will tell you this, John Calvin was very skeptical of the church fathers. He said they were confused almost certainly on this, this subject. Let him take it up with him now. C.S. Lewis stated that the greatest miracle of divine power and sovereignty is that God could create a being that could say no to Him. That God is so great, He can create that. The third way, reason. It seems unreasonable that a God, and again, I'm, I'm taking a tact here that some of my Reformed theologian friends would say, well, now wait a minute, Cliff, you didn't talk about middle knowledge, you didn't talk about infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism. I, I, I get that. If you're interested in that, you're weird. But uh, I can, I, we can talk. But if everything that is happening in the universe is the will of God, question 7, Westminster Catechism, then it is not reasonable for God to be against sin. It's the law of non-contradiction in, in logic. If He wills it, He can't be against it. And this is where this really becomes a contentious matter. Because many of my Reformed friends and theologians, hey, Cliff, you're, you're begging the question. I said, whoa, hold, hold on. Just go back to that question and let's work from seven. If there's sin in the world, it is the will of God. Now, there are all kinds of explanations here. I understand. I get that. I'm not trying to be dismissive of those guys. But if God is against sin, how can He will it? Now, a friend of mine said, not, nobody in this classroom, so everybody relax. Take a breath. A friend of mine said that it, we don't understand it but it is to God's glory. And I said, if you don't understand it, then it, you don't know if it is to God's glory. You can't fall back on that. Well, it's just to God's glory. Well, how is that to God's glory? Well, we don't know. Well, then you can't say it's to God's glory. It's the law of non-contradiction. A can't be B. So reason. It, some would suggest that philosophically and from a reason standpoint, God cannot be in control of everything and directing. And then finally, uh, fourth, experience. Experience. Experience tells us, I think, we don't start there. We don't start at experience. I think experience tells us that we know intuitively and personally that God is not in control of people. He's not in control of me. He's not in control of you. He can tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I'd rather you not do that. I think that'd be a bad idea. Don't do that. Sends his Holy Spirit to correct us like that. But you, he's not going to make you do what you ought to do. So the challenge for me in this is this. Whew, brother. The challenge for me is this. <clears throat> to see God exhaustively sovereign over the matters of salvation, the way he created the universe, the kind of universe he wants, where love is possible, the challenge is to understand that, accept that, believe that, and know that God wants a universe where love is really the fabric. I, I tell you, this is a big idea. I, I wish I had one. But listen, if this is true, then the whole universe is built around this loving God that wants a relationship with people. This loving God who, who wants you to enter in with Him. And by that, we bring glory to Him. God is most glorified, John Piper says, when we are most satisfied. With him. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied. Can you not see that when we understand that God wants a universe built on love, how that satisfies the longing, the desire of every human heart? Not just God's big, He's a boss, He gets glory and bite your lip on it. And that's a mischaracterization, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have said that. I know, leave it alone. <laughs> but, but this understanding that God is sovereignly, exhaustively in control of those matters. On the Armenian side or the Wesley side, the challenge is, well, one guy said like this, the challenge in the Reformed tradition is how can an all-powerful God be loving? How, if He's all-powerful and every decision and action is happening, how can He be loving if He's causing this to happen or that? On the Armenian side is how can a loving God be sovereign? 
That's the challenge, isn't it? It matters. It matters. I'm going to give you two, two more things here real quick and we're done. God is not in control, but He is in charge. Those first things that I talked about, exhaustive sovereignty, not surrendering any of that. How He created the world, how He created human beings, what kind of world He wants, what the conditions of salvation, and how this is all going to end. That is non-negotiable. How human beings react, how they relate, how they operate in this world, limited control. Karl Barth made this statement when he said, God has willed that there be other wills. God has willed that there be other wills. He has willed that you have a will. Again, this is so fundamental, it's in my judgment, and you don't, it, it, is that love would not be possible. A friend of mine, we read a guy named Peter Kraft, who's a brilliant scholar up at Boston University. <clears throat> and I, again, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it, it does, it, it makes, maybe you'll remember this. <clears throat> in the Reformed tradition, in, in the Western tradition, there is a, a high understanding of God as a father. They're a family sort of model, loving I'm not saying Calvin Dove, I'm just saying this is an extreme. But in, in one sense, in the Western Armenian view, there is that God is a father. And in the Calvinist view, God is the Godfather. He's going to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> now that's unkind in one sense. But you may remember it. God's a father, or He's the God. I'm going to make you an offer. Anyway. Favorite movie of all time, of all time, when they cleaned it up. Um, so what are the practical implications? Here, here, I'm going to stop there. There's kind of our, our application. We're not going to number two. We'll deal with election next week. No, we won't. And I'm not saying I've got this all figured. I just, I, I feel my, I feel a need to say when Jesus said that this, this thing, this King, rule of this world's getting kicked out. The kingdom's here. How is it here? So here, here's my question. Here's the practical upshot of this. What, what you believe about this sovereignty matter is are there things in the world that we should not accept as inevitable? You're going to have to answer that yourself. If, if you subscribe to the notion that everything that's happening is the will of God, then I think you have to accept that there are things that are just inevitable and you, there's no reason for you to even think about it. does prayer matter? Does prayer really matter? Or should we say, ah, well, you know, just do what you want to do. Or is God in this relationship, I use this word carefully, but is He influenceable? Not like, hey, I want a Ferrari. But is there some divine interest? Now, Augustine did say this. He said, without God, we cannot. And without us, He will not. See, he's trying to balance this. Without God, I don't think the universe is out of control. I hope you don't get that. I believe God is exhaustively sovereign. All those things that I said. Without God, we cannot. Without us, He will not. That means your prayers and my prayers matter. Now, I, from what I read about American evangelical Christianity, I don't think I'm going to have to worry anybody about getting you guilty because you're praying too much. Right? Most of us don't pray nearly. And I don't know how much it is. I'm not trying to put a legalistic... I am saying this. I think that it's possible that we ought to take prayer a little more seriously than we do. I sense the Spirit of God say this to me one time. I think it was Him. It's that voice that I've learned to understand. Is this. When this gets more serious to you, Cliff, it's going to get more serious to me. I spent 20 seconds... Asking him about something. About a person who was ill. Is that, is that, am I, does that matter? 20 seconds? Does prayer really matter? I mean, I just, is God going to get more serious about this when I get more serious about it? To say, I really mean this, God. I'm, I'm asking. I know you love them, but you're asking me to participate. This isn't just throw your, Thoughts into the corner and then run off to work. Does prayer matter? We say it does. 
is being a part of God's kingdom, part of His plan to restore and correct this world. Is being part of His kingdom. This, this ruler is getting kicked out. God's will is not being done. Is being part of God's kingdom, part of His plan to restore and correct what's going on in this crazy, messed up world? Or do we just say, well, that... Other people on all different gradations. And finally, the, the biggest question for me in wrestling with this is what is the character of God? What is the character of God? What is this one we talk about so much really like? I'll tell you a real quick story. I'm keeping up. I was gone last week, so. Several years ago, um, I was teaching on some of this and making some statements, and I had told a story about a young girl whose mother had died when she was nine. And at the funeral, people were doing all they knew to do. By the way, I'm going to respond to some of these uh, questions, and I may get on Facebook maybe do some more. Or we'll do some more next week. You know, we just keep going. <laughs> uh, and, and at the funeral, uh, some well-meaning people that, that loved her just said, well, you know, your mama died because God wanted to take her home to be with him. And when she was nine, it was okay. As she got older, she began to ask this question. What kind of God needs my mother more than I do? Fifteen years old, growing up, I got lots of challenges. What kind of God needs my mom more than I do? Now, I don't think the people meant anything about it. They were trying to come. And again, we, we misplace it sometimes when we try to just blow it out. Oh, God's in control. She got so angry, she just flat rejected him. I told that story, and a girl in my class was hanging around at the end while I was putting my books away. I said, I need to talk to you. Okay. She said, that's exactly what happened to me, and I've been so angry with God for the last 10 years, I want to kill him. Really? Really? And we talked and we said, see, this is where the character of God begins to start driving this issue. What kind of God is He? I believe you see Him in the face of Jesus Christ. This God who is fully God and fully man, who is wrestling and struggling and experiencing real temptation and learning to follow His Father. That's the real picture. Well, I'm going to leave this with you today to think about, chew on. You can send me emails if they're nice. I don't contend with you that I've figured this all out, but I know well enough that this is one of the things that people struggle with. Maybe not today, but when tragedy and difficulty and problems happen, it comes right to the surface because it comes back to who's in charge around here. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, take these thoughts, these words, and use them for your glory and our good. Help us to lean into you and into this world that you've placed us to be your representatives for this kingdom that we're a part of. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.